It is a great joy for me to be here. I know that you probably hear that every time someone comes as a guest speaker, but there is no way for me to describe the blessing that your pastor has been to me for um, now 26 years. When I first arrived at the Master's Seminary uh, and at Grace Community Church, he was one of the first people who ministered to me, and I had no idea who he was. I was playing basketball in the gym, and I think he felt sorry for me because I was so bad, and uh, invited me over for Thanksgiving dinner with his family, Um, and I mentioned to someone that a guy named Lance had invited me over for Thanksgiving, and he said, Lance Quinn? I said, yeah, I think that's right. He said, do you know who Lance Quinn is? And I said, "Uh, a guy that celebrates Thanksgiving. That's all, that's all I care about. Uh, he's from Arkansas. The food's probably going to be good. So I'm, I'm going. <clears throat> Turns out Lance was John MacArthur's personal assistant and senior executive pastor of Grace Church. And, and you know, all I knew is he just was very, very gracious to me. As I think about my testimony, and uh, Lance told me I only have a couple hours here, so I want to get started on that. The term that that most prevails in my mind is the word grace and as Lance displayed that kind of grace that if you know him you have experienced as well from him was really communicated to me with great clarity by our then pastor John MacArthur. Uh, I was a false convert at that time. I was relatively well-spoken I had had some significant success in ministry and uh, concluded that I really needed to be trained. I really wanted to be a godly man. And so that, in essence, is why I chose to attend the Master's Seminary on the campus of a faithful church, that I would be not only under the educational tutelage of faithful, humble professors, but under the shepherding uh, leadership of godly pastors And in fact, the Lord blessed me with that. But in that time, while I was in seminary, um, through a series of events, I was exposed as a whitewashed tomb. And um, while there's so much that I could tell you about my, uh, my life, Lance really mentioned one of the things that is maybe in an earthly perspective and, and in an eternal perspective as well, the immense blessing of my wife, Kimberly, I was 37 years old and had not yet met my wife. I'd been praying for her for a long, long time. I used to introduce myself in public crowds by saying, just so you know, the biggest problem with my wife is that she never shows up anywhere. And uh, the Lord uh, caused her to show up into my life when I went to be on staff at a, a church and school. I was school principal and associate pastor at a church in Lancaster. And th- at 38 years old, the Lord blessed me to be married, and now, these years later, we have six wonderful children. And, uh, of course, that's, um, that's secondary, although it's massive, it's secondary to the grace that the Lord showed me through men who loved me enough to tell me the truth about myself. And that's what I'm going to do with you this morning. So uh, I trust that what I've shared with you in brief will be helpful to sort of prime your heart and my heart, that as we go to the Lord's Word uh, together a little bit later, that it will be the passion of our hearts to understand what biblical restoration is. You may need restoration, whether you are a false convert yourself this morning, uh, or you are a faithful man in Christ whose life has been um, immeasurably useful to lots and lots of people. You may need some measure of spiritual restoration this morning. And I'm here to tell you that uh, I know what it is to be full, to have a, a heart that is full, having acknowledged that my works and in many senses my hypocrisy was a display of a great need for restoration. And um, the Lord used your pastor in my life so many years ago and continues to do that to bring me great personal joy. The first person I call when I need counsel is that man. He's the first person I call. There's a handful of others uh, that the Lord's blessed me with, but the grace that the Lord showed me through Lance and continues to show me 
uh, is such that I can't leave his life out of my testimony. Ultimately, of course, it is the, the, the active obedience of our Savior, Jesus Christ, his atoning death that certainly covered my sins as predetermined by the Father uh, before time, uh, and the new life that Christ displayed and therefore displayed the power that you and I have over sin and over death, that we would rest in that gospel is the result of God's grace. So my hope for us this morning is that you and I would collectively seek out the grace of God as we would understand better what it is to be restored to him in ways that would make us useful for his kingdom. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time, shall we? Father, we've experienced your grace this morning in the kindness that you've shown to us in the provision of food, not only food, but excellent food with such diversity and tastiness that it is expressive of your diverse and untold and uh, incalculable, incalculable kindness to us. We pray that now as we sing to you and as we go to your word, that you would be honored and that especially not only through our voices as we lift you up in word, but that from our hearts we would find ourselves resting exclusively in the work of our Savior on the cross and in his resurrection. We ask these things in his name. Well, man, I want to ask you to turn with me to the book of Galatians and chapter 6. Before we look at this passage together, I want to read to you from another passage, and I'll just read that to you. You don't need to turn there, but I'll do that in a moment. As I mentioned uh, a moment ago, my life really can't be with any measure of honesty or uh, degree of significance be spoken of without a significant discussion on the matter of God's grace. And when I mentioned um, that the Lord showed that grace to me through Lance many years ago, it was a number of years later when, as I mentioned that my life was exposed as a whitewashed tomb, that after some period of time under the close discipleship of a mutual friend of ours named Jerry Ragg, uh, Jerry said to me, you know, you really need to talk to John. And I said, well, I I would love to talk to John. Um, So, of course, I will. And Jerry arranged that time for me. And I didn't know what John MacArthur would say to me. Um, I won't go into the details of the sin that I had committed, but I will tell you that it at least temporarily displayed me clearly, at the very least, as a person who is not qualified for ministry. And as I look back, I'm, I'm fairly certain, as I mentioned, that I was a false convert. But under Jerry's close discipleship, I began to really understand the power of the gospel of grace to do a work in a man's life to produce in him a hunger for obedience to the Lord who died for his sins. And so, because I wanted John MacArthur's absolute best counsel, I told him everything. And I have to tell you that in the moment, I was relatively certain that he would say, you know, Todd, thank you so much for coming out from Texas. I had lived in Texas for six years prior to coming out to L.A. Thank you so much for your time with us. We'll miss you. Um, We wish you the best. That's not at all what he said. He said, I think I understand what's been going on in your life this last six months where you've been under the careful leadership of men in our church. And I think it's time for you to consider coming back into the seminary, finish your training, get on with ministry. Another elder had said to me, you know, Todd, you need to become a married man. And that, of course, was true as well. But the thing that most prevailed in my mind uh, in that time with John were these words. 
you know, Todd, you need to understand God's grace. I had no idea what that meant. But I trusted my pastor because he's trustworthy. And so I, for the next numerous years, I still continue to do this. I, in a heavy, very concentrated way, worked hard to, and it just started with my concordance. What is grace? What does it look like? So growing in my knowledge and understanding of God's grace has produced in me a hunger for understanding the gospel, displaying the gospel in my own life, and communicating the gospel in a way that people would understand that many times an act of restoration is necessary. You see that throughout the scripture. You see that in the godly men who the Lord used significantly. One of the men that the Lord used significantly was a man who fell and fell hard, and that's Peter. So I'm going to read to you from Matthew 26, beginning with verse 69. You're welcome to turn there if you like. It says, Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. Peter lied. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. That's a, an astoundingly evil statement. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath, some sort of Jewish deeply heartfelt commitment to convince those who were in his presence that he not only wanted nothing to do with Jesus, but had never had anything to do with him. He was, in essence, laying his life on the line so his life would not be laid on the line. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This was me. This was me. I wouldn't have said it this way. But my life in the dark was a complete rejection of the light, though I was willing to live as if I were walking in the light. I truly was walking in the darkness. This was exposed. Men who loved me, four men who loved me, sat down and confronted me for two hours, and I lied for two hours. And at the end of that two hours in a more private conversation with Jerry out in the hallway, Jerry said to me, Todd, you can do a pretty good job of snowing people, but you can't snow me. I know you. And my heart broke. And then the flood of confession came, I went back into that room and confessed nearly everything, and over the next several days and weeks, I felt like I needed to go back to those men and confess things that I hadn't confessed. As you think of the life of Peter, certainly you think of a man who's been restored as a false convert. We don't know everything that was going on in Peter's heart, and you know, there's some debate as to whether or not he was a believer. I'm convinced he was a believer at this point, but there is a debate. Either way, he's acting like an unbeliever. And when you look at Matthew 18, that's what we're dealing with, right? In our hearts, uh, our desire is to believe that this person who is acting like an unbeliever is a believer. But we don't know because he's acting like an unbeliever. So what do we do? We go to him in love for the purpose of restoration. We call it church discipline, right? I think we ought to call it church restoration, if we're going to call it church discipline, let's at least call it both. 
That's the goal. That's the desire. The ultimate goal is God's glory. He will save and he will sanctify the elect. But I don't know who they are until God saves them, until he begins to sanctify them. I'm convinced that he will use me and he will use you to restore ungodly men who have pretended to be godly men. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the real work of sanctification is done by or through the word And the Holy Spirit does this work in us by the means of the word. This is a most important truth for Christian people to grasp and to understand. And what you and I need to know and remember about this is that this does not happen in a vacuum. It does not happen exclusively in your quiet time. Our evangelical culture wants us to think that Christianity is about Jesus and me. It's not. It's not. It's about Jesus and the church and me. And the church has a duty. The church has an obligation to purify itself. You're probably very familiar with 1 Corinthians 11. The church is to judge the church. Judgment is not for outsiders. Why would we judge them, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. We're to be involved in each other's cleansing and, and how through the teaching of the word, through the memorization of the word, through meditation upon the word, through counseling the word, we're to bring the word of God to bear upon each other's hearts. Paul says in Romans 15, we are full of goodness. Because of that, we are to admonish one another. There will be times for every person who is in Christ where they need some measure of admonishment because they're acting like they're not in Christ. In Galatians 6, verses 1 through 10, Paul really gives us a clear mandate for how to be involved in each other's lives. And he does so in such a way that reveals a shepherd's heart that showcases restoration. I've got two points for you this morning. The first point is this. I want you to be a, a shepherd of restoration. And you might say, look, I'm not a pastor. It's okay. I'll explain to you as we go through this why you should still long to be a shepherd of restoration. You know, you, you might be a person who needs constant encouragement. That's, I believe, true of most every new believer Maybe you've been a believer for a while, but you just think, I just feel like I need encouragement every day. I need somebody to be telling me something helpful every day, maybe every hour. Word of advice. If you need to hear encouragement, speak up. By all means, speak words of encouragement and you'll hear it. As you become the person who longs to be the rock, longs to be that faithful man who's involved in other people's lives for the sake of restoration, for the sake of beautification, spiritual beautification, for the sake of sanctification, for the sake of God's glory being on display in your life and other people's lives, don't wait for someone to come to you with encouragement. Set the standard. Set the tone. Be the man. Provide that encouragement. And and I'm not speaking psychologically. I'm simply saying the reality is that as you provide encouragement for others, that may be the best source of encouragement that you could get. Nothing wrong with receiving verbal encouragement from others. When my friend Lance says things to me that are pretty kind and speaks gracious of me, he has to make a lot of stuff up to do that. But (laughs) when he does, it's actually very helpful. I'm not downplaying that. You may you may be gifted with exhortation and so you you know you're constantly looking for ways to encourage each other. Praise God, but but not everyone is inclined that way, but everyone should be in some sense whether you are specifically gifted that way or not. You got to be looking for ways to bring encouragement to others whether it's because you see spiritual growth 
or whether it's because you have hope that they will display spiritual growth, but they're not. I want you to be a shepherd of restoration. Many times the Lord will use your words of encouragement to bring that about in others. So Paul, as you probably know, is speaking to a number of churches in the region of Galatia. He lists the cities in which those churches reside, some of those churches. And at the tail end of the book here, after he has really um, established a, a great nearly militaristic attack on legalism. He has ushered in the need for those who would overcome legalism by helping them understand the power of the gospel. And then here, he addresses the need to address those who are yet caught up in legalism, a works System. Some of whom are saved, some of whom are not. You know this, right? There are those who rest in their legalism and have done so from the beginning, and they're not Christians. But there are those who are Christians, but they go back to legalism. Maybe just because of immaturity, but regardless, it needs to be addressed. And Paul says that those who teach that legalism, those who teach a work system, are accursed. He declares a curse upon those who teach a false gospel, a gospel of works. And so here in chapter 6, verse 1, he talks about those who are entangled in this. Listen to what he says. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now, this word caught does not mean katcha. This is the Proverbs 15.22 being entangled in the cords of sin kind of caught. It's bound by your own sin. That passage in the Proverbs is pretty powerful. It speaks of the cords that prevent a man from being able to do much of anything. And so often, maybe you've been there, I certainly have, a person who is bound up in the cords of his sin is so entangled that all he can do is point. And that's often why blame shifting happens. He's so disabled, he's so unable to rest in the Lord, to display any kind of effectiveness in anybody else's life, and all he can do is blame everybody else. And that's the case here. When you find someone who is caught, entangled, under the burden, you know how the Pharisees, Jesus talked about how the Pharisees would tie up heavy burdens and place them on people's heads. And what did he, how did he describe those burdens? He said they were unbearable. Those burdens were unbearable. And think of it, the Pharisees who pretended to be bearing those burdens themselves, but really weren't. You know, we don't know how much Pharisees knew about their depraved state. It's probably a matter of degrees for different Pharisees, but certainly they were not successful at what they were attempting to lay upon other people. This is the legalistic person. This is the legalistic teacher. This is the legalistic shepherd in some cases, probably, where the burdens are placed upon people to do more than what they are capable of doing. And many times it's extra biblical. Many times it's something that the expectation reveals that there isn't a focus upon that which would actually be helpful to that person. He says to do this with a spirit of gentleness. And that's what a shepherd does. He does things with a gentle spirit. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2 to Timothy, you're to be patient when wronged that those who are sinning against you might be one. That's the essence of what he says. Be patient when wronged. That can be hard for a pastor. It can be hard for any Christian. But as you think of those who need restoration, just remind yourself, when you become critical of that person and you think they need to hear your admonition, prove it with your gentleness not by placing an unbearable burden upon them. He's pretty clear, Paul is here. He says, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens. 
and so fulfill the law of Christ. You say, what in the world is the law of Christ? I believe that what Paul is referring to here is the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Also to love your neighbor as yourself. Seems kind of simple, doesn't it? That you would bear one another's burdens and in so doing fulfill that law, that command, that requirement. So often the person who wants to have an influence on someone else's life, he sees a person in sin. So often, unfortunately, what he does is lead that person into further sin because he ties up a burden upon him that only frustrates him and he further strangles that person and ultimately potentially strangles the life out of him because all that person knows is that he's saying, you need to do better. And what's absent in that relationship? A willingness to bear the burden together. Now, this is very interesting because Paul's talking ultimately, although I think it applies across the board with regard to anyone's sin, no matter what it is, he's ultimately and primarily talking about the sin of legalism. How do you bear the burden of the sin of legalism? You get into that person's life and you talk about it. You establish a relationship, you establish a platform. You know, maybe you come initially with more questions than with declarations. Find out how best to get to know this person, to serve this person. Go back with me to chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says, I'm astonished. This is a strong term for you're really, you know, freaking me out. You're really shocking me with your conduct. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him, Christ, who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That's heavy language. Well, he's saying this, obviously this person's not a Christian. I don't, I'm not, not necessarily the person who's engaging in the legalism. You know, interesting that Paul doesn't affirm all the Galatians the way he does the Corinthians. You know, Paul affirms the Corinthians as a body of believers who are very, very immature and plagued with a whole lot of self-inflicted difficulty. But clearly Paul here is speaking to a group of people, some of whom are believers and some of whom who aren't. But regardless, the problem across the board is legalism. Verse 10, he says, for am I now seeking the approval of man? How does Paul do this? How does Paul develop the ability to address someone else's sin and to do so with gentleness? Here's how. Am I seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. See, Paul is a shepherd. It's not to say that he totally dismisses the concerns of people. Uh, When someone says, you know, when I preach, God's my only audience. um, I'm thinking you could probably do that alone then. Because if you're not really concerned about how people respond and how your preaching affects them, I'm not completely convinced that you're really all that concerned about what God thinks. Really being concerned about what God thinks means that we are concerned about how people respond to our ministry, our preaching, our counseling, our confrontation, our comforting, whatever it is. But Paul does this with an endeavor to not fear man, but to fear God. Do I fear man? If I do, I'd be useless. I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. But no, I fear God, and therefore I love people enough to tell them what I think they need to know. In verse 11, Paul says of chapter 1, For I would have have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. But see, Paul knows he's the chief of sinners. He knows he's a sinner saved by grace. In verse 13, he says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. 
And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. He spent three years alone with the Lord. Three years. Seeking God's face, seeking God's favor, seeking God's will really wrestling with what the Lord would do with his life. That's how Paul could effectively engage in an absence of fear of man in a regular expression of a fear of God. He spent time with God. But Paul also spent time with people. He had relationships Verse 18 says, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, and what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. See, Paul's not boasting. What Paul is doing is saying, look, I was a wretch. I was a murderer. I had studied hard to be a rabbi and really to be a Pharisee. And so Paul is willing to stand before people and tell the truth about his former life. Maybe you've done this. I've, I've certainly done this in my life. In, in the past, I have I had found m- myself frequently endeavoring to cover my sin so that people would respect me. Are you familiar with Proverbs 28, verse 13? It says that he who conceals his iniquities will not prosper. But he who does two things, he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. A friend of mine used to paraphrase that passage by saying, Todd, what you cover up, God will uncover. And boy, did he. The second half of that paraphrase went like this. Todd, what you uncover, God will cover. So my commendation to you this morning is to fear God and don't fear man and start with a willingness to confess your sin. Be honest about you before you find yourself hoping to be honest about somebody else. How does Jesus say this? Remove the log from your own eye before attempting to remove the speck from someone else's. So often we run headlong into an effort to deal with what we think is a speck in someone else's eye because the log has blurred our vision and we're we're wrong. There's not a speck in that person's eye at all. We've seen it completely wrongly. And until we're willing to expose our own sin. You know, I would hope that you and I as men would be much more committed to confessing our own sins than confessing someone else's. Sound a little bizarre in our culture? (laughs) You and I ought to be passionate about exposing our sin. Why? Because it glorifies Christ that he covered it all. That he would cover all the sins of my past is astounding to me, but he's God. And in his love for us as God incarnate, he bore it all. He bore my sin of anger. He bore my sin of impatience. He bore my sin of dishonesty. He bore my sin of sexual immorality. He bore my sin of anxiety. He bore my sin of depression. He bore my sin of bitterness. You fill in the blank. If Christ died for you, he died for all of your sins completely. And your passion ought to be to glorify him by telling other people what he's covered. Now listen, be careful. You know, don't ask Lance if you can speak in front of the church and tell the church about everything you've ever done. First of all, it would take too long. Second, it's not helpful. (laughs) I had a gal a few weeks ago come to me and confess to me, her hatred of me. And I mean, she went on for a while. (laughs) 
this, uh, this gal's a faithful, noble Christian. Uh, but she confessed to me that she had not been willing to give me grace. She had seen me sin. I mean, if you know me, you've probably seen me sin. It's true of us, isn't it, as Christians? And so because she had seen me sin, she deemed me a hypocrite. And so she went on and on about how bitter she was toward me. And I didn't say this to her. The timing wasn't right. I think one day I'll probably have the opportunity to let her know, look, you don't need to share the secret sins of your heart with me. You haven't sinned against me unless you've acted on it externally. Your secret sins of your heart are not committed against anyone but the Lord. But when you act on them, those are the things to confess to someone. So be careful about what you confess publicly. There probably needs to be at least one and maybe three or four or five men in your life that you can really confess things to. But if you're going to be a shepherd of restoration, you're going to be willing to confess your own sin. He says, Paul says uh, back to uh, our passage in, Galatians 6, he says, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. This was Peter. This was Peter. And so in chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. See, Paul loved Peter. He loved Jesus. He loved the church. He loved the elect. So it was necessary for him to address Peter's Legalism, his hatred for Gentiles. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. He, he was acting like an unbeliever. He appeared to be condemned. In fact, say it this way, Peter's conduct was condemnable, was worthy of condemnation as mine has been. Verse 12, for before certain men came from James... He was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul has a way of boiling things down, saying it in a way that makes you think, yeah, how'd I do that? And see, this was after, think of it, guys, this was after Peter was the bridge between Paul and the other apostles. Well, Barnabas was the ultimate bridge, but Peter extended the right hand of fellowship. It was Peter's approval of Paul that kind of gave him a gateway into the church subsequent to Barnabas' approval. Some might have said, you know, I'm going to cut him some slack because he really paved the way for me to get into ministry. I'm probably not going to address things with him. But no, he loved him much more than he loved his popularity with him. His favor with Peter was far less important to him than his love for Peter. Verse 4, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. What Paul is saying here is that ultimately all of us will be responsible for the load that we bear, but he doesn't do that apart from involvement in relationships. The reason that Paul could say what he said to Peter was because Peter knew that Paul loved him. That's what people need to know about you. Prove your credibility when you're convinced someone needs correction. Prove your credibility by doing it with gentleness. Be involved in relationships, and I mean really involved. I was telling Lance about our church administrator. He's a young man. He's 27. I just married him and his wife a few weeks ago. I've known him since he was 17. And when I performed his wedding, a number of the men that had spoken about him, whose testimonies I was able to read at the wedding, stated about him consistently was that he is 
intentional about relationships, more so than anyone I've ever known. That's what they kept saying about him. Deliberate, looking for opportunities to say, hey, can we go and talk? Hey, can we get together every two weeks or so? See, that's just basic discipleship. That's basic discipleship. Pouring yourself into other men. And then when you get to the place where you recognize that a person is caught, he's entangled in his sin, then you have the credibility to snip those cords. Growing up in Missouri, uh, spent a lot of time fishing on the creek. A buddy of mine and I were in a canoe floating down Center Creek. And I was very young. And as we were fishing, we came across a, a large log that was bobbing up and down in the water. Noticed a green trot line. A lot of people call it a trout line. It's actually a trot line. And it was entangled in this log, and it was moving up and down. So we thought, okay, this is obvious. Something's on that line. So as we approached it, we pulled it and pulled it and pulled it. It was very long. As we pulled it up, there was a snapping turtle about this big around entangled in the trot line. And I don't know how many times this cord was wrapped around that poor turtle, but we very, very carefully (laughs) unwrapped and unwrapped and unwrapped and unwrapped and eventually freed that snapping turtle and let it go. That's what you do when you approach someone rightly with gentleness. What's the purpose? Restoration. Not to jump down their throats, not to guilt them into faithfulness to Christ, but to show them a pathway unto grace. Again, if you might say, you know, Todd, I'm, I'm not a shepherd. Paul says to us in this passage, be as I am. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, imitate me as I imitate the Lord. So much of what a pastor does is producing in other men a likeness to himself that they too would follow Christ. There's really not much of anything about a pastor's life that's not intended to be almost identical to that of every man in the church. Certainly there are duties that a pastor has that other men don't have. But the call to discipleship is a a call to mimic another person's life. And what better way to mimic a faithful man's life than to be effectively involved in the restoration of others? So I encourage you men to be a shepherd of restoration. Second, I want to encourage you to be a showcase of restoration. You say, I'm not sure I can be a shepherd, but please help me understand how I can be a showcase. Let me just say this. The pathway to becoming a shepherd of restoration is being a showcase of restoration. I had a dear friend years ago whose father was a professional boxer, uh, bantamweight. His name was Chucho Pimentel. And when we'd go to Chucho's house, there was a shrine. It was a small house, but a large percentage of it, of it was taken up with trophies and pictures of him. And I remember saying to my buddy Jesse one time, man, your, your dad was amazing. And he said, you have no idea. He said, Muhammad Ali said, my dad was his favorite boxer. And in the same way that that shrine displayed the life of Chucho Pimentel, your life should be a shrine to the life of Jesus Christ. You should be a showcase of grace, a showcase of restoration. If you can't confidently say, you know, there was a time in my life where I was exposed as a false convert, I'd encourage you to think through that. Most of us were false converts at one time. Most of us as children thought, well, of course I'm a Christian. My parents are, so so am I. I'm an American. They're Americans. You know, grew up in Joplin, Missouri. We're all Joplinites. We're all Christians. Paul says in verse 6, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches If you've not yet done so, whether it's Lance or some other faithful teacher of God's word whom the Lord has used effectively in your life, you need to tell them. It was my privilege to have my 
14-year-old son hand-deliver a personal note to John MacArthur just a couple weeks ago at Camp Regen where I said, John, Pastor John, you've been my teacher for 26 years. Oh, the things I could share with you. I didn't want to bore him with all the details, so I shared one thing. That one thing was that John and Grace Community Church are having an impact in Redlands through the Anchor Bible Church. It's because of John's ministry. It's because of Lance's ministry. It's because of the ministry of so many other people. Those who have invested in me, and I need to at least occasionally tell them how the Lord has used them in my life and is using them in the lives of people in Redlands. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. This is reflective of the reality that what goes into the mouth is eliminated, but what comes out of the heart is expressive of what defiles a man. It's what's inside him. But in the same way, when good comes out of that man, it's because good is in that man. You reap what you sow. When you've been taught well and that teaching sinks down deep into your heart and you become a showcase of restoration and you're willing to confess your sin of hypocrisy and your sin of false conversion, if that was the case, then the Lord begins to use you as that showcase. Again, do not be deceived, he says. In verse 8, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. You see, that's a showcase of restoration, that you're willing to persevere. Are you willing to return your heart and your life and your mind to the reality of what Christ accomplished on the cross and in the resurrection? Is that where your hope is? Or when someone accuses you of not being a Christian, do you get defensive and say, let, you, let me tell you about my deeds? I've had that opportunity more than a few times in my life as a pastor to sit down with a man. Many times it's after months of counseling and say, look, do you think we should continue this or not? Because as far as I can tell, you're not willing to comply with God's word. Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't seem like a good use of your time or my time either. Yeah, you know why? Because I'm convinced you're a false convert. I was listening to Tom Patton preach a few days ago, a mutual friend of ours. And Tom said that another mutual friend of ours said about him that um, more than anybody he's ever known, he's the nicest guy when it comes to telling somebody that they're not a Christian. You're so nice about it, you can get away with it. It's not so much about being nice. It's about being loving. If you yourself can be honest about your own false conversion, it's very likely that you then could be honest about someone else's potential false conversion. Don't grow weary in the well-doing. Paul says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are the household of faith. Let me ask you, are you devoted to the body of Christ? You know, years ago, a group of folks came into our church. They were looking for what they called a launch pad. They said that they were very um, involved and had been for a long time in evangelism. And I said, oh, well, who's your local church? And they said, we're looking for one. I said, okay, how can I help you? How do you think I can help you? He said, well, we just kind of want a stamp of approval so we can, you know, tell people where our local church is. And I said, well, let's start from the beginning. I got to get to know you. I have no idea whether or not what you're doing is evangelism. And it turns out it wasn't. I called it bullhorn abuse. You know, screaming at people at market night in Redlands, trying to guilt them out of hell rather than developing relationships with them. Are your relationships in the household of faith of high priority to you? And I wouldn't suggest that you make them a higher priority than your family, but I would say that your relationships with your family should be such that you're nurturing in them a high view of the church, that they too would want to be faithful 
to the household of faith. That's how Paul says it. Let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. I want to finish with 2 Peter 2, verse 14. Listen to the words of Peter. After now he's been exposed, he's been affirmed, and he's been nurtured as a faithful shepherd. 2 Peter 2, 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. How can a guy who denied Christ tell you and me to do that? Here's how. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. You might think, and it certainly has happened in ministry, that Peter would have some sort of burr under his saddle for Paul because he confronted him publicly. Quite the opposite. In writing for all the world to see forever, Peter refers to Paul as our beloved brother. The man who looked him in the eye and said, you are a legalist. How do you expect people to follow what you're doing when you're acting the way you are? You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Men, be a shepherd of restoration, but first, be a showcase of restoration. Father, what joy you've given us to know that our hope in Christ and our involvement in other people's lives for Christ is not dependent upon our willingness or ability to come to you, but rather that we would remember that we love you because you first loved us. And may that love for us manifest itself in a willingness to bear the sin burdens of others that we might see them restored with gentleness. Amen. Thank you, brother. Thank you very much.